And so get your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter one. And I'm going to start a new series um, that will take us up to our birthday. Our birthday's coming up uh, in September. And so I'll be doing this series until then. But I'm starting a series this weekend called Counter Culture. Counter Culture. And, and here's what we'll be talking about. And um, we're going to talk about the fact that it seems like to me, it seems like to me, maybe not to you, but to me in my short life, and it's been very short so far because I'm very young. Okay, that, that kind of hurt. That kind of hurt. Yeah, I'm going to preach on hell now. Um, but anyways, um, and judgmentalism. But anyways, um, it seems like culture has shifted away from God. Just in my lifetime, it seems like culture has shifted away from God. And so uh, I want to talk about living for God in a culture that seems to move away from him as, in some cases, as fast as it can go, moving away from God, away from his standard, away from his values. But here we are believers who confess the name of Jesus. And so how do we live in a culture that seems to be moving away from him? How do we serve God and live righteously? How do we live godly in an ungodly culture? And that's what I want to talk about. And that's what takes us to the book of Daniel. Um, Daniel is, uh, hopefully you know this. Let me help you and give you some, some insight if you don't know this. I know we have people who are new to the faith and new to church. And so let me just help by saying, how does this, Daniel's in the Old Testament. How does all that work? Well, the Old Testament covers about 4,000 years of history. From the time of Adam to the time of Jesus is about 4,000 years, okay? And the Old Testament, here's, here's a key to the Old Testament. The way it is put in your Bible is not in chronological order. It's good to know because you can all of a sudden like see where King David dies and then later he's praising the Lord and you're like, how'd that happen? And so, so it's good to know it's not in crowd. They grouped it by type of book. So you kind of have the law and the history and then the poetic books, right? And so that's Song of Solomon, which you can't read till you're like in your 20s. Um, and, and then like the, you know, Psalms and Ecclesiastes and all that. And so that's, you know, and then there's um, major prophets and minor prophets. And it's not that the major prophets are more important. It's just they talked more right? So like I would be a major prophet. It's not that like Pastor James would be a minor prophet. Now, he, I'm not more important than him. It, what he has to say is just as good. He just says it shorter. <laughs> I can't say anything short, right? And, and so, so we have major and minor prophets, but it's not in chronological, chronological order. So we get to the book of Daniel and where does the book of Daniel land in all this? Well, the book of Daniel lands around 600 BC. Now, it's important to know that the Old Testament covers, uh, it's 4,000 years, but there are 400 silent years between the Old Testament, um, which would have been, you know, like uh, Malachi, I think is the last minor prophet to, to say anything. And then we get like 400 silent years. And so that we have 3,600 years where God's talking and we have writings. And then we have these 400 silent years where we don't have writings. And so where does Daniel fall? It falls about 600 BC. So about 200 years or so before everything kind of goes dark, if you will. Um, and so it, when you look at the chronologically, you know, look at it chronologically, you have kind of the book of Daniel and then you have like your Nehemiah and and then you kind of end up with your Zechariah and your Malachi and then things just go off the grid until we get to the book of Matthew, right? To the birth of Jesus. And so that's how all this falls. Now, what's the significance uh, of the book of Daniel and why are we studying it? Well, here's some things you need to know. First of all, uh, Daniel is 12 chapters. The first six are history. In fact, that's where we get a lot of veggie tales. Um, has great, like Rack, Shack, and Benny, right? And, and Daniel and the Lion's Den, that all comes from the first six chapters. Uh, handwriting on the wall, that all comes from the first six chapters of Daniel. So the first six chapters are historic um, in that they, they kind of give us this texture and this context. Uh, and then the next six chapters are some of the greatest prophetic um, writings that we have in the Old Testament. In fact, Daniel was extraordinarily accurate as a prophet. He, he prophesied the fall of the Babylonian Empire, the rise of the Medes and Persians. He, he prophesied all the way through the Roman Empire. In fact, he with very, um, with specificity, oh, I couldn't say that, so I'm not going to say that. I nearly spoke in tongues. Um, but, but, he, but, but he actually um, very accurately predicted when the Messiah would be born. 
And so extraordinarily accurate prophetic writing and, and work in the book of Daniel. But how do we, how do we get this book of Daniel? Well, um, the book of Daniel is, is, it comes to us because God speaks actually through Jeremiah and prophesies to the king of Judah. And he says, hey, if you don't follow me, I'm going to let you fall into the hands of the enemy. And Israel or the people of God did not follow God. And so God allows this king called Nebuchadnezzar to come and besiege uh, Judah and take uh, God's people into captivity. And so Nebuchadnezzar was kind of like the Alexander of the great, like the Roman empire of the day. He had conquered just about everything. Um, uh, King Nebi, if you watch Veggie Tales, most of my, what, most of what I know about the Bible comes from Veggie Tales. And so <laughs> that should make you feel at ease if you're here today. Don't worry about it. And so anyways, uh, King Nebi um, goes and besieges Israel. And then what they would do is they would take and conquer. And then they would bring the people back to, um, back to Babylon. In this case, King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. He'd bring them there and make them slaves. Uh, and then what he did is he actually took some of the more royal or affluent or educated people. And they would become servants in his court. Uh, especially if they were young. And so this is where we kind of get the stars, if you will, of the book of Daniel. We get Daniel and then three other guys, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Now, you may not be familiar with those names. You're probably familiar with their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Rakshak, and Bendy, Mashak, Yershak, and Bungalow, whichever one you would like <laughs> to associate with them. Right, that's probably, but but their their given names from Judah, from their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, and so and so those are the stars of this. And so think about this just for a minute. They are from Judah. They were serving the Lord. These are very righteous men. And then and then King Nebuchadnezzar comes, besieges them, takes over, and now they are being uprooted from their somewhat godly culture for some people, right? And so I understand Israel are at the time the people of God weren't really serving God as they should, but they were serving God and they're uprooted from their Hebrew culture and placed in Babylonian culture. And now they're going to be educated on how to live in a Babylonian culture. And this was the real issue that we see, especially in these first six books is how do you live for God when you're in a culture that's against him? And what I love about it is they do it with style and with class and with integrity, right? And, and with righteousness, and yet they do it with grace, yes. right? And love and compassion. And so that's what we're going to study today. And so if you want to turn with me to Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to kind of walk through, we'll use almost the whole chapter today. And so um, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, it says, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave him victory over King, did you see that? The Lord gave King Nebuchadnezzar victory over King Jehoiakim. Here's what I want you to understand. God is so gracious and so loving that if you will not choose to serve him when everything is good, he will let you fall into situations and circumstances that aren't good because he knows the nature of humans is that when the fit hits the shan, we cry out to God. And so you may be sitting here in a crisis and that crisis may be the mercy of God because you're here today. That would be a great sermon if I had time to preach it. Let's go verse two. The Lord gave him victory over King Jeho Jehoiakim of, of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. In other words, some of the holy things from God's temple he took. Uh, and then Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them uh, in in, in his treasure, in the treasure house of his God. So this is like the highest form of disrespect for God. Uh, verse three, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring um, to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been uh, brought to Babylon as captives. Verse four, select only strong, healthy, good-looking young men, he said. So kind of people like me. And he... <laughs> You are like 0 for 2 so far. You're 0 for 2. Uh huh. <laughs> Make sure. 
make sure they all are well-versed in every branch of learning and gifted in knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. And train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. And the king assigned to them a daily ration of food for wine, uh, food and wine from his own kitchens. Now that sounds good, but we'll talk about that in a minute. They were to be trained for three years and then they would enter the royal service. And Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. Could you imagine, I was thinking about this today. I was thinking my grandfather, and he's not been gone that long, but I was thinking about if my grandfather uh, actually came back from death today and just watched the news or just watched TV, it would be appalling to him. It would be a shock to him. Like I'm, I, I, I'm not even that old. And there are things I read all the time that I'm like, oh my God, like for real? Because when I went to school, it was bad, but we didn't have metal, metal detectors. I mean, it, it, there's some rough things that went on. I mean, there's drugs and sex and, and rock and roll. And I know that because our youth pastor and all preached against those things. Every youth rally I went to, those were the things we preached against. I don't know what we were for, but I know what we were against. And we were against sex, drugs, and rock. We were against dancing. We preached against that. You didn't shake your thing to the world's music. No, uh-uh. And, and I think the reason was, and, and then they preached against premarital sex. And I think they preached against premarital sex because it would lead to dancing. And so... <laughs> I don't care who you are. That's funny right there. And so, and so, and so, but I just thought how shocked he would be at some of the things that are going on today. And I th thought about how shocked were these four Hebrews the first morning they wake up and they're in Babylon, right? We're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. Like there's the munchkins running around, you know what I mean? There's weird stuff going on. And, and we kind of feel like strangers and foreigners. I think the New Testament says we will feel like strangers and foreigners sometimes. And so I want to talk about how do we live for God in an ungodly culture. And, and here's what you need to understand. Culture is going to keep changing because a culture is something that Satan uses for his agenda. Culture has an agenda. And we're going to find out really there's two main forces in the work today. There's the kingdom and there's this thing called Babylon, which isn't just a kingdom, but it's a spirit. And we see it, it begins in Genesis, and it is judged in Revelation, and Babylon runs through the whole Bible. And I think Babylon is the root of culture that moves away from God. And so we're going to talk about that next week. I'm pretty excited. Uh, next week, I think the message is, uh, uh, I'll tell you the title because I love it. Uh, it's it's uh, cultural Kool-Aid and kingdom clarity. That's next week. That's going to be awesome. And so <laughs> you're going to love that one. And so I called this message, though, we got to get back to this week. I called this message culture shock. Culture shock. And, and here's really the question I want to answer is, um, are we as a people going to be people who change the world? Or are we going to be people who are changed by the world? Are we going to change the world? Or are we going to be changed by the world? And so if you're taking notes, there's some things you could write down. Number, number one is culture will, and here's number one, culture will identify you. Culture will label you. Culture wants to label you. Whether you're a fanatic, oh, you're a fanatic. Get up on Sunday morning and go to that church and sing those songs and listen to that guy. You're a fanatic. That's ridiculous. Yet these are the people that paint their bodies on Sundays and root for a sports team that is not going to win. <laughs> and, and we're fanatical because we're rooting for someone who has already won. Come on, somebody. Yeah. So, but they'll label you. They'll identify you. Watch this. In, in verse 7, Daniel chapter 1, verse 7, it says, The chief official, uh, this is Ashpenaz, gave them names to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. In other words, the culture gave them a name that was more consistent with 
culture. Do you know the enemy's trying? He's trying to label you. He's trying to label you divorced or depressed or, or, or something else. He's trying to, to label you abandoned or hopeless. Culture is trying to label you. And, and this is not, this is a major thing when they're given these names. And let's, I just want to look at what the names meant and how it changed. Watch this. So Daniel actually means God is my judge. In other words, I answer to God alone. He is my judge. But they named him, they renamed him Belteshazzar. You know what Belteshazzar means? Lady, protect the king. They gave him a feminine name. And they said, you're, so, so here's what culture does. It, it, number one, culture wants to, watch this, culture wants to change your loyalty. Hey, you're not loyal to God, you're loyal to the king. You don't do things the way God says, you do the things the way the king says. Like you're in Babylon now, your priorities have changed. Like over here, priorities may be prayer and worship, right? But over here, priorities are fun and success and money. Was that, was that too real too fast? I'm sorry. Right? And so the first thing culture wants to do is change your loyalty. Hey, you don't be loyal to God. You be loyal to us. Hey, you, you better get in line with the rest of the world here. Your, your values don't work in this culture. What you believe doesn't work in this culture. In fact, you'll be criticized for what you believe. And then the second thing is a culture actually wants to confuse you. It wants to confuse your identity. He went from, from God is my judge, Daniel, God is my judge, to lady, protect the king. Listen, you can study it, say what you want. Go study history. In every pagan culture, there is gender confusion. Yes. Yes. It is always part of the agenda of any culture that is not of God. It is always. And listen, it's not enough that culture is trying to teach you that sexual imp impurity is okay. It's trying to confuse who you actually are. Like when I grew up, there was heterosexual and homosexual. Now there's like 60 something different identifications, sexual identifications. And you think we're not confused? It's like, no, we're more free than we've ever, no, 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 no. We're not free. We're screwed up. We are more screwed up than we've ever been. And I think one of the things that culture has done that's been incredible is, you know, we by nature, by, the, by nature of creation, we were formed in our mother's wombs, the Bible says, that God knit us together and that God created us individually. We are individual. In other words, you're not like me. It's like my fingerprint. I, God made me to be me, not to be you. And so God made all of us special and unique. But when you remove the creator, then you remove the uniqueness of the creation. And now people who know they're supposed to be different don't know how to be different. And now culture has said, here's something that's real popular. Claim one of these identifications and you get to be different. And culture has made sexual confusion popular to where we have adolescents, 11 and 12 years old, claiming to be something. They have no spirit. They have no experience. They have no context and they have no understanding, but I get to be different. This is popular because it was on Instagram that somebody in Hollywood was pansexual. I'm sorry. Is this too much for a Sunday morning? Are you guys still breathing? And so you watch every time, every pagan culture you're going to see gender confusion because culture, listen, wants to change your loyalty and confuse your identity. Let's look at Hananiah. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Yahweh, in other words, God's been good to me. Oh man, he has been good. Watch what they changed his name to though. Shadrach, it says, I am fearful of God. And here's what culture says, two things. Number one, you can't trust God's nature and you can't trust God's standard, right? I have to be scared of God. God may not be good. And here is what the enemy has been using for years. And in fact, when you look at it, this goes all the way back to the garden. God's not good. He's keeping something from you. Don't trust his standard. You can eat of that tree. I mean, this, let me help you. Satan has nothing new. He just paints it differently. Like he's not creative. He just paints it differently in every culture. And we're like, oh, we've been enlightened. No, we're doing the same thing he did Adam and Eve, man. Oh, we know so much more. Do we really? 
And so here's what we say. You can't trust God. God's not good. Here's what the world says. If, if your God was really good, why did that happen to you? Let me help you with something. It would have happened to you if God wasn't real. Because you live in a broken world. And stuff's going to happen. But here's what happens. When it happens to people of faith, we get to have hope. We get to have help. We get to have healing, right? We get to have peace when we're walking through something. Like we, we get to live as people of hope saying there is more than this. So life may have happened and it may suck really bad right now. But you know what? God is with me and God is faithful and God will see me through it. And when you don't serve God, when it happens, you don't have anybody to see you through it. You're on your own. And so it's like, you can't trust God, God's not good. And you can't trust his standard. God's trying to keep you from having fun. He's, he's, you can't, listen, God's demanding too much of you. Do you know how much culture wants? All of you. But God's demand, listen, God's standard, let me help you with something because I think we miss this sometimes. God didn't create his moral standard for him. God's never broken a commandment. He even put on flesh and came to this earth and never broke a commandment. So God didn't create the Ten Commandments because he's like, well, I need to make sure that I have accountability. God created his standard for you because the creator and the author of all life knows how it works best. And he said, I'm gonna create this standard because I'll tell you what, when you don't lie and when you don't murder and when you don't covet, when you don't commit adultery, life is better. Well, how's it better? Because there's less sin, there's less brokenness, there's less pain. Like God's standard is all about mitigating your pain because when you sin, it hurts you and everybody around you. And don't say it doesn't because everyone in this room has been hurt by someone else's sin. And if you've been hurt by someone else's sin, someone's been hurt by your sin. And the God who says, hey, the reason I'm saying we're gonna try to live without sin here is because when we sin, it creates brokenness and pain. And I'm a gracious and loving God and I don't want you to experience any pain or brokenness. You don't have to. So I I give you a standard, not for me, but for you. <laughs> All right, let's look at Azariah. Azariah, Yahweh is my helper. Here, here's, here's what he says. Um, Yahweh is my helper. Um, they changed Yahweh is my helper to Abendigo. Abendigo means slave of Nebo. Slave of Nebo. It, it, here's what culture tries to do. It tries to take sons and make them slaves. It's the whole picture of Babylon. Here's some sons of God, some Hebrews, and now they're going to become slaves in Babylon. And that's what culture is trying to do. And you know, I was thinking about this the other day. If I, if I were Satan, and if I wanted to take sons, slaves, if I wanted to take captive people, you know what I'd do? I would make bondage look like freedom and convince them that was so. And I would say, hey, drink this, do this, sleep with this, try this, take this, because this is what freedom is, getting to do anything you want to do with whoever you want to do it, whenever you want to do it. And I wouldn't tell them that there's a way that seems right to the man, but in the end, it leads to destruction. I think that's what the wisest man who ever lived, his name was Solomon. I think he wrote those words probably out of experience. There's a way that seems right to a man. Man, look how good this is. Awesome. I don't answer to anybody. I do whatever I want. And then you look up and you're addicted. And then you look up and you're broken. And then you look up and you're in pain and you don't know what to do about it because someone taught you or convinced you that bondage really looked like freedom and that freedom looked like bondage. Why would you serve God? Why would you have somebody you got to answer to? Right? If I want to take sons slaves, all I would do is play on their broken nature of rebellion and make them convince, hey, the farther you get away from God, the more free you become. When I knew in fact because I would have been Satan and I would have been in the garden and I would have known in fact that watching Adam and Eve move away from God led them into all brokenness and bondage. Um, let's look at the, the last one. Um, Mishael. Mishael says, who is what God is? That's what his name is like. There's nobody like God, right? Our God is an awesome God. He reigns. Like he's like, nobody, here's what changes the name to. I'm despised, contemptible, and humiliated. That's what Meshach means. See, culture, culture is actually shifting to where at one time, even if people were not 
believers, they still respected believers. They respected their values or their morals. If nothing else, they respected their conviction. But now culture is kind of shifting, not from, hey, we respect you guys and we respect you follow the Lord and we respect that you have these convictions. Now it's, we're attacking you, you bunch of bigots, bunch of hateful people. I was appalled. I read an article the other day where Chick-fil-A decided, Jesus Chicken, decided to open stores in Toronto. Um, and, and there was this blitz on Twitter from these Canadians. And, and what they were saying, I'm like, really, that's toleration? I thought you were the guys that, because they're like, you're, it, it was mostly from the gay or lesbian or, or some other sexual orientation preference or identification. But they were calling uh, Chick-fil-A bigots full of hatred. And, 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 and the quote that was in the article from Truett Cathy on Chick-fil-A simply just said, we believe in the family as the Bible defines it. And we'll do anything to better and support families. And that was, like, when did we get offended about everything? Right? Like, we live in a culture that we're offended about everything. Like, read social media. Everybody's offended about everything. Oh, my God, they looked at me. Oh, my God, their car is blue. OMG, IDK. They went to church. That makes me mad. I don't know. It's crazy to me. And these people were offended because a business that simply has different values than them wants to sell them chicken. (laughs) And this has become a Twitter war, right? They're tweeting like Trump. I mean, they are like (laughs) blowing stuff up. You know, and here's what I want to say. Here's what culture has said. One time it's like, hey, we at least honor or we at least respect believers to where now, hey, you're one of those believers, you keep your mouth shut. You stay in your church. You don't talk about your vote. You don't talk about what's going on. You don't offer your opinion. But let me help you with something. I'm part of we the people too. And my vote matters and it counts and my voice matters and it counts. And you can't tell me to shut up just because I have values that are based on the word of God. Just because I believe something you don't believe doesn't make me a bigot or full of hatred or make my voice any less important than yours. And by the way, separation of church and state was not put in there to keep Christians from interfering in politics. It was actually written to keep politics from interfering with Christians. That was why I was asked, and they know it. They know that's how it was written. All right, I got to move on. That's good preaching. Here's the thing. Culture, culture has a name for you. See, Dan, all these names, the four Hebrew names, all point to God. And culture is going to push against, it's going to attack anything that bears the image of God. Uh, Daniel and Mishael, their names end in E-L or L, that's Elohim. And Hanani and Azariah, their, in, their names end in A-H, that's the A-H out of Yahweh. And so all of them point, and that's why they had to change their names. Like we're, we're against anything pointing to God. And here's what you need to understand. Culture is going to try to identify you. It's going to try to rename you. It's going to try to label you. But here's what you need to know. God has a name for you too. Revelation 2 verse 17, it tells us something really cool. It says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is in red because this is Jesus talking to John while he's on the island of Patmos. And, and so it says, to, one who is, to the one who is victorious, I'm going to give some hidden manna. I don't know what that is, but I'm all about some bread. Carb load. But anyways, here's, look at this. I will give also to that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. In other words, God has a name for you. If you've been born again, God has a new name for you. And it's based on his kingdom. And it's based on your calling. And it's based on his plan for you. And listen, that's why we do everything here at Pathway. Let me help you with something. I, we never plan anything that's a waste of time. You know why? Because my time's valuable and so is yours. And, and so if we plan something, so the, here, here's what I want to say. Here's what I want to say. Everything we do is to help you discover your unique name, really. Your, how God made you, your, your calling and your purpose, right? That, that's what we do. And so the reason we have First Step is because when you come to First Step on August 25th at 9 a.m., when you come to First Step, August 25th at 9 a.m., here... 
When you come, we're going to help you identify God, the, the spiritual gift that you have. And we're going to help you understand the way God made you. And we're going to help you understand the types of things that, that God's doing in and through your life and will do in and through your life. We're going to help you. And when you go to a group, we know this. You can't walk in freedom unless you walk in relationship. That's what we know. And so we're like, we're going to launch life groups at our birthday, right? And we would love for you to get a life group, right? Uh, and then we'd love for you to serve, right? These, these are not things we invented because we were bored or needed to do stuff. These are things that we know changes. Here's, here's what I'll say, and I try to say this all the time, and, and this is one of those things where in a loving way, if I could shake you and say it without being arrested, I would, but I would say, listen! You know, what's that little YouTube? Listen, Linda. Linda, you're not listening to me, Linda. Do you guys remember that little kid on YouTube? Anyways, here's what I say. Listen, everything we have designed here is to help you discover who you are and what you're called to do. And that's what weekends are about. And that's what groups are about. And first step and next step and serving. And here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. Give us one year. Give us one year and just walk through the processes that we offer. And this is what I say. Like, give me 40 weekends this next year. 40 out of 52. You can miss church three months. <laughs> Growing up, if I'd have missed church for three months, they'd call me backslidden. I'm just trying to get your 40 weeks out of 52. But here's what I say. If you'll give me 40 weeks on a weekend, if you'll get in a life group, if you'll go to first step and take next steps, and if you'll serve in one year, listen to me, if your life isn't better, I'll change churches with you. I'll go wherever you want to go. Are you with me? And I'm serious. And you know why? Because everyone who has committed to those things, they will tell you. Is anybody in here, your life is better? It's not the same since you got involved in those things? Okay. All right, here's, here's that was all point number one. We're going to be here all day. Number two. Number two, culture will identify you. Culture will press you. Daniel 1.8. It says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked for permission to not defile himself in this way. Here's what happens with the diet. Now, think about this. It was probably the king is offering his food to these guys. And so that was probably good food, like filet, right? Garlic cheese, mashed potatoes, right? You know, Nestle Toll House chocolate chunk cookie not the little ones the big ones because those little ones that's like slapping a gorilla you want a big cookie warm out of the oven with some whole milk not that cheap stuff but like like it just came out of the cow stuff probably salted caramel truffle blizzards because that's what Jesus would eat and so like this was probably good good food. this was probably good food right but, but it went against their dietary laws and in fact most of the food would have been offered in idol worship which went against their law as well. And Daniel's like, man, we can't eat this food, man. We decided we're going to stand for God. And here's what culture will do. It will press you. It will press your convictions. And it'll say, hey, it's not that big a deal. It, it's just a little food. Like everybody, hey, when in Babylon, you know, everybody else is doing it. I mean, what's the big deal? It's just some food. I mean, we're in Babylon now. Hey, you don't even have a choice. This is what they're telling you you have to do. And it will press against your convictions. You know what I love is when you read this verse in, in the King James or the New King James Version, it says, uh, Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. I think Daniel made the decision to not defile himself, not when they offered him the food, but on the trip from Jerusalem to Babylon. And see, here's the thing. Culture will press you, but you need to know it won't stop pressing. Because at first it was food, then it was worship, then it was prayer. When you read the, right, food, and then there's that whole fiery furnace thing, right? And then it's like, Daniel, it's illegal to pray to anyone besides the king. And we know that Daniel prayed, even though it was a death sentence in the lion's den, and he prayed in front of, and we're like, oh man, that Daniel, he is so solid. Yeah, but he didn't make the decision to stand for God then. He made the decision when he was taken out of Judah. He purposed in his heart then that he was going to stand for God because he knew I'm going into a different culture and it is going to push against my convictions. And it's just trying, listen, it's what culture does. Hey, everybody in business does this. Hey, it's okay. Everybody cheats on their taxes. Hey, it's okay. Everybody sleeps with them to see if they want to marry them. 
Mostly I just create awkward moments in church. <laughs> right? And that will culture, hey, everybody, it's okay. It's just a little, hey, it's just a little, it's just a little lies, just a little things, just a little. It's okay. It's what we do, man. We're in America, man. God, God didn't understand what our culture is going to be like. You can't expect to live everything, he says. You know, you got to. Culture will press you. Here's the third thing. Culture will test you. Daniel 1, 11, Daniel said to the guard, the official, he said, please test us for 10 days and give us nothing but vegetables and water. This is where we get the Daniel fast. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. By the way, these would have been Hebrews who didn't stand for God. Eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what they see. So they agreed to test them. See, culture is always going to create a clash with your convictions. And it's going to press and then it's going to test. And culture is looking to see, just like everybody around you, do you really believe what you say? I I never forget... um, uh, when I was 17, I really made, in my own heart, my decision to follow Jesus. He became my God and not just my parents' God. And, and, um, and so I just purposed in my heart, God, I'm going to serve you no matter what. I didn't know exactly what that looked like. I didn't know exactly at that point I was going to pastor a church or anything like that. I just got him. And I remember thinking, God, I'm going to serve you, serve you, serve you. And I remember um, uh, all the, like, walked, walking into my first day in college. I'm going to serve you, God. My first day in college, I learned there's not a dress code, apparently. And because this girl came in who I, I think was dressed more for the beach. Um, and it wasn't really appropriate for learning, um, unless it maybe anatomy class or something. But <laughs> And sat down, and, and by the end of the class, I'd have been invited to a party. And it was really easy for me to say no. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I had purpose in my heart before I ever got to college. Like, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live for you. And so when culture throws things at me and says, hey, this, hey everybody's going to be there. Hey, you ought to come. Hey, it's going to be great. It was really easy for me to say, you know, that's just not, not what I'm going to participate in. Like, no, I'm not trying to judge. I'm just saying no for me. I, I've got a different set of convictions, and I'm not going to yield them even. And I could have said, well, I'm going to go. I'm not going to do anything. Right? Remember, it just it starts with a carrot stick, and then before you know it, it's worship, and then before you know it, it's prayer. Like, we admire Daniel because he was willing to face the lion's den, but, but before he got to the lion's den, he was willing to say no to a stake. All right, so how do we respond? Well, um, I think we, as a church, we have to respond, and here's the problem. I think there are two extremes. Most of the time in church, and if you study church history, church people are like pendulum people. We kind of go from here to here, right? And, and all through church history, like no matter what, what it is, we, we kind of swing from one extreme to the other extreme, from one extreme to the other extreme, um, right? Either we're Holy Spirit people or we don't talk about him because he might get loose, <laughs> right? It's kind of like one extreme to the other extreme, you know what I'm saying? Um, and, and, and so there's kind of two extreme responses that I see most of the time from believers. Uh, number one is the world is wrong and we are right. And, and we have a bad, like we blow up Facebook with how right we are and it, and all we do is judge people. And and I just want to remind you that, that God didn't actually like you technically, you may be right. I mean, truthfully, you, you may be right. But God didn't ask us to be right. He asked us to be effective. Right? And in our rightness, and sometimes in the pride of our rightness, we're more repulsive than their wrongness. Right? And so, so we're right, and everybody else is wrong. May be true, but it's not effective. And so we, we can't just throw truth bombs at people and blow them up and judge and criticize them by God's standard that we hold to, that they don't hold to, because they're just going to turn us off and say, you're just the bigots, you're full of hatred, you don't listen, you don't understand, right? Are you with me? And then, and then the other one is, hey, let's just let everybody in, no big deal, no one really has to change. You know, God understands everybody, God made everybody, he understands it's just the way we are. And it's kind of this, this crazy thing that in the name of love, listen, in the name of love, believers have actually set aside the standard of God as if they love people more than God loves people. 
Oh, you don't have no God. No, God made you that way. God made everybody that way. Just however you are, that's how God made you. Unless you're Hitler. It's kind of interesting that the rule doesn't work all the time, but it works when it's conveniently applied. And so, so to me, we got to find something else. Like these two don't work because God loves you so much. He calls you to a standard. God is so loving. He says, man, here's how this works. God is so loving. He's like, I'll tell you the things that don't work. And here's how it does work. God is so loving because God is loving. He calls us to a standard. And so we can't assume ourselves where we're more loving than God because we've just removed the standard. That's not love at all. That's like watching someone drive 100 miles an hour towards a cliff, knowing there's a cliff, but saying, well, I don't want to tell them. I wouldn't want to offend them. I don't want them to slow down. Just wait. (laughs) And so so how do we respond? Number one, we, we need to live... Like we're in the world, but not of the world. We need to realize we are not of this world. Jesus talked about this in John 17. He said, there, he was praying for us. He was praying for you. And he said, we're not of this world. And then he prayed that we wouldn't be taken out of the world. So he's like, I want you to live in the world, but not be of the world. I want you to be in the world, but I don't want you to be of the world. So let me, let me help you with, I think, what I see in the book of Daniel that I think applies to us. And so I, I think this is the phrase. That, that living for God in an ungodly culture is, is simply, we're not, I, we do not isolate. No isolation, no imitation, but there is infiltration, right? No isolation, because this is what the church has done. We have, we have hidden in the bunkers of the church and thrown out truth grenades over the wall, hoping that that would save someone, right? Like, oh my God, don't let the church, don't let the world in here. Do they have a tattoo? Keep them out, keep them out. Are they wearing a tie? You can't come in here looking like that. Uh Uh-uh, this is a holy place. We got to keep the world out of it. Yet we can't go and be a part of the world. We can't go interact with them because it might get on us. Oh my God. My neighbors who don't profess the name of Jesus sin. So you're telling me sinners sin, like sinners sin. Yes, And this is shocking why. (laughs) They don't know Jesus. They don't know anything different. Well, I can't be a part of them. What if somebody sees me and they're drinking a beer? I don't know. Jesus kind of dined with uh, tax collectors and sinners. And they said really bad things about him too. But he sure was effective. Maybe, Maybe it's really not their sin is the problem. We're the problem. Like, why do you get offended at somebody else's sin? That's kind of like spiritual pride and self-righteousness, isn't it? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like Jesus said, go into the world. Go, go into the world and proclaim. Not hide in the church and throw out Facebook posts and hope that they catch your drift that they're in sin. Okay, I'll just, I'll just move on. So, so not isolation, not imitation, because then there's this, well, we need to go into the world and, and be like the world and be at the parties with the world and be on Tinder with the world. I'm sorry, did I say that? Uh, and, and we need to do what the world, you know, hook up like the world. And, you know, we have our godly values, but out there, it's, we're going to live in Babylon. When in Babylon, do like the Babylonians, baby. Here's the problem. You have nothing to offer the world because you're just like them. Do you see that in this book, God is pursuing Nebuchadnezzar and you know how he's pursuing Nebuchadnezzar? From Daniel, through Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, Mishael. He is actually pursuing this, this pagan king through these four men who would not bow, but yet with all grace lived in Babylonian culture, but they lived to serve God. And so we, we, we can't, no isolation, no intimidation, but infiltration, we go in the world. And we live our values in the world. And we profess Jesus lovingly in the world, right? Here's the second thing. We live to influence others, not to change them. Did you know you can't change people? If you're married, say amen. You can't change people. Right? We're not supposed to change. And we're, I, I had this opportunity this week. We have a, a student leadership program that Pastor James put together and is, and is leading 
And so we have a group of phenomenal 16, 17, 18 year olds uh, in this student leadership program. And they've been serving around the church, kind of like interns. So they've been serving um, all summer at the church and they've been in leadership and learning things. And so he said, as we're closing out the summer, pastor, would you come and just do some Q and A? And I said, yeah, let them prepare really good questions and I'll answer all the questions that they want to ask. And, and they had some really amazing, amazing questions. But what I loved was a lot of the questions had to do with how do we influence people who don't believe like us? And I'm like, at least you're asking the right question because it's not, how do I change them? It's how do I influence them? How do I become a person of influence? And so I'll show you this really quickly because what's amazing to me when you read Daniel chapter one, verse nine, God favored Daniel, right? Now, why did Daniel get favored the way that he did? Well, here's the thing. When you stand for God in a world that bows down, God will favor you right? When you hold God's standard in a world that presses and testes and tests, right? I don't think testes is a word. I don't grammar well, y'all. But anyways, um, right? Then God will favor you. But then when you read Daniel 1 through 17, I'll just tell you what it says. It says that, that these men, these four men were found to have knowledge and understanding of everything and even Daniel could understand visions and dreams. And it said that when they were tested, they were found to be 10 times better than anyone else. I'll just give you a great quote. When, when culture makes it seven times hotter, God will make you 10 times better. And so here was the thing. They decided to be people of influence and to influence King Nebuchadnezzar or allow God to influence him. In fact, they did it so graciously that even when God tells Nebuchadnezzar he's basically gonna go insane in the membrane, <laughs> you got to be raised where I was to sing that song. But anyways, when he tells him that, Daniel actually tells the king, he said, oh, king, I wish this dream were for your enemies and not for you. Dude, that's strong right there. He's a slave to this guy. Been extracted from his home and told he's got to serve this culture. And he's doing it with righteousness and integrity, right? But he's also doing it with grace. And here's our model. Like if we want to influence, right? We can't change, but we influence. Then we look at what Jesus did. John 1 verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We can't hide in the church bunkers and throw out truth grenades, Jesus didn't stay in heaven and say, y'all come on up here if you can. Come on up to the big house, y'all. I can't get myself dirty. I can't get around sinners. Somebody might think something bad of me. They already do. We live in a world that's offended about everything. Somebody's offended with you too. Let me help you with that. You're free, man. And this is as we've seen his glory as the only son of the father. I think Jesus said it this way, that, that um, he said, live in such a way, let your light shine before men so that they'll see how you live and what you do and glorify your father, right? Go into the world, be a light. To be a light, you have to be different, right? In other words, here's what, here's what he's saying. Show them something different. Remember, not isolate, not imitate. Go into the world, show them something different. And then it says this, Jesus was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. What is grace? Grace is unconditional acceptance. We as a church have to decide that we're gonna tell every person the same thing Jesus told them, which is you are unconditionally accepted. You do not have to believe like us to belong to us. Now I know what you're thinking, but, but, but they're sinning. Okay, just breathe, just breathe. It's gonna be okay. Acceptance is not approval. I'm not saying offer unconditional approval. I'm saying offer unconditional acceptance, right? <clears throat> hey, you, you can belong to us. Hey, you identify as gay, that's okay. We'd love to have you at our church. If we do church like, right on Sunday morning, We'll have people with different sexual orientations and it will smell like Jack Daniels, anointing oil, and marijuana if we're really doing church right. 
Oh, I'm sorry, but oh, the sin will get on us. It's okay. We're washing the blood. It doesn't stick. (laughs) And then truth. Notice grace went first and then truth. Truth is just simply God's standard. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We will not compromise the word of God. We believe it as it is without some psychotic interpretation that bends to our convenience. We believe it is, and we believe all of it, not the parts we like. Are you with me? It's grace and it's truth. It's grace and it's true. I, I was thinking about this this week. My son was having uh, surgery. And, uh, and so, of course, I, I was writing some of this while I was sitting in the hospital uh, with him. But um, <laughs> I was thinking, so, so pardon my analogy, but I got to thinking, I'm like, you know what? Truth without grace is like surgery without anesthesia. It is. It's like, we're just going to start cutting and hope you live. But on the other side, grace without truth is like anesthesia where we don't do the surgery. We just put them to sleep. No, dude, you're good. Man, everything's great, man. Just stay as you are, man. Don't worry about it. You're good. We'll just lull you to sleep as you are. Hopefully you won't die. I don't know. We're not actually going to fix anything. We're just going to tell you, we're going to numb you up and tell you you're okay. And when I look at Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, And here come the truth bombs without the grace bombs. And they throw her down and say, the law says, stone her. And Jesus said, well, whoever has never sinned, you throw the first stone. And then he starts writing in the dirt. I personally think, we'll ask Jesus when we get there. I think, because they left in order from oldest to youngest. I think Jesus started with the oldest one and said, okay, Bob, these are the people you've slept with. Okay, Jim, these are the, and all of a sudden, and I think by the time it got about 10 deep, they're like, I'm out of here before you ask my name. I'm, I'm getting out of this business. I, yeah, you have the woman, I don't care. And then Jesus looks at her and says, hey, where are those who accuse you? This is a woman who was in adultery. Most of us would agree that is part of the top 10. And Jesus looked at her and said, neither do I condemn you. You're accepted with me. Unconditional acceptance. In the mid, caught in your sin, I accept you just as you are. But, but then he says, now that you're accepted, I love you too much to leave you in your sin. Go and sin no more. Grace and truth. You're accepted. We will not change the standard. You're accepted with us, we cannot bow our knee. You're accepted, but God's way is always better. Are you with me? So the question is, are we going to change the world, or is the world going to change us? (laughs) Amen, why don't you stand? That's a good word.